following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. prophecy, the, 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 the way he was a prophet. Um, Hosea, as many of the other prophets, um, really truly lived out their lives as, as prophecy. It wasn't just something that they, they preached. It wasn't just something that they you know, had their sandwich board and they stood outside of a ball game and they waited for people to come out and said, you know, Jesus saves, the end is coming. That, that really wasn't what the Old Testament prophets really looked like. It really was a lifestyle. And that's why they were chosen to be in the canonized Bibles because they truly lived a lifestyle that matched the message that God had given them. And Hosea did this in a lot of interesting ways. We, we actually don't know a whole lot about Hosea. Uh, we know who his father was, but outside of that, we don't really know where Hosea came from, where his bloodline came from. He just kind of showed up. Uh, we know that he was in ministry for about 40 or 50 years. Uh, we know that he was probably um, on the more wealthy side that he had a following of sorts. The way that the text is written um, suggests that he had probably disciples of his own that were kind of writing this text as he was responsible for, the, for putting the content that God gave him into it. And so in order to have disciples and a following and the ability to hire scribes, uh, you had to have some standard of wealth in that society. So we do know that he was probably somewhat wealthy. We also know that he was very intelligent. He uses a lot, a lot of very complicated um, sentence structuring, um, a lot of complicated terminology, a lot of complicated um, word pictures, which really demonstrates that he was probably very, very well-versed, um, very educated. And so through these things, we can, we can draw the conclusion that Jose had a lot to lose. He was well-connected. He was wealthy. Um, and he had a lot to lose. Now, Hosea starts out um, right before the fall of the kingdom that he was in. And his, his job is really to bring this message of redemption, redemption to his people. And initially, the, his, it says his, it, we don't know for sure if it was his first, but it kind of alludes to the idea that his first prophetic message was that God had commanded him to go marry a prostitute to go marry a woman named Gomer. And he did this. He, he did exactly what he was told. Once again, I remind you of his status, most likely, in the society and the way that people looked upon sexual promiscuity at that point in time. For a prominent man to go and marry a prostitute was pretty much a social death sentence. It's, he's setting himself up for a very long, hard life of difficulty. And so he had a lot to lose. And God called on him to marry this woman because God knew and God told him that your children will be born out of prostitution. So not only was he going to go marry a prostitute, but he was going to have children that were attached to that. And he knew this. Once again, prominent man in society married to this woman, sexually promiscuous. I mean, this is something you could be stoned for then. And he was supposed to marry this woman and take on her family. Well, in doing this, uh, the way the story progresses is that eventually, while they're married, she ends up going back into prostitution. And God does not miss a step. He makes a point out of this, and he says, this is going to be a demonstration of how Israel has treated me. I have brought them in. I have saved them. I have redeemed them 
I have given them a home to live in. I've, I've given them things that they absolutely don't deserve. And now they are going to go out and prostitute themselves to the nations. Now, in doing this, Gomer had pretty much removed herself once again from the family. Later on in the story, Hosea is challenged by God. Now I'm going to make another point. I want you to go and I want you to take her back. I want you to bring Gomer back into your life. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, he goes and he finds her, and she can't just come back. Um, she has to be purchased back, because the, the idea is that she is probably being owned by somebody at this point in time in her profession. And he buys her back with 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. Now, it, according to that, to his income level, that... That wasn't that much, but it would be considered a, a middle price. So that, that assumes that Gomer was probably a very attractive person. Um, she was probably um, living with, owned by a fairly wealthy person. And it was, it was Hosea's job to go back and convince this wealthy person that I want to buy her back from you. And he told him, you know, from the very, very beginning, I'm, I don't even want her back as a prostitute. I want her to come back in my, in, in my house as my wife. And then... And then she's just going to live there and gain everything that I have to offer her. And she is going to be restored to her rightful place as my honored wife. And our kids are going to be restored to their honored place as children with a mom and a dad that are high in society and have been fully restored to their place. This was the life that Hosea lived. Now, we see this demonstrated um, in a particular, well, all through Hosea, actually. Hosea is a, is a whole... Um, cycle of sin, um, salvation, and restoration. And, but I want to take you specifically to the, to the portion of Hosea 6 today, if you'll join me there in the scriptures. Because I feel like Hosea 6 really well defines what the point was. What was the message? I'll go ahead and start out by just reading that. Hosea 6, um, and we're just going to go verses 1 through uh, 6 at this point in time. Starting in verse 1, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. Now he will heal us. He has injured us. Now he will bandage our wounds. In just a short time he will restore us so that we may live in his presence. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming of rains in early spring. O Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Asks the Lord. For the love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. The first thing that I really get from this scripture is a calling. That we are absolutely called as believers to be redeemed, to be restored. God wants us to be restored. He wants to take us from our sinful places and He wants to restore us. God has every desire of seeing us in close personal relationship with Him. The way the structure works is there's several of the we must category, so that he will, so that the end result. And the we musts are that 
We have to return to God, return to Yahweh. We have to return to Him. We have to desire Him. We have to, we have to shine our faces back upon Him and want Him to redeem us. Another one is that He wants us to know Him. To truly know Him. Now this, is, this, this word know is very contextually packed in Scripture. Um, it goes everything from uh, the, the relationship that a man and a woman have in marriage to the relationship that Christ and the church have to uh, the relationship that we are to have with our brothers and sisters in Christ in, in our neighbors. Now, I think that this is meant to be by to know Christ or to know God. I truly think that he means in the deepest sense of the way, far past anything that we can possibly imagine in our married lives. Far past that. Now, most of us, actually quite a few people in this room, are, are married or have been married. Some of you are just getting about to that point. My wife and I have been married now for three years. Yay! And I still, on a daily basis, feel like there is just so much to learn. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't have it figured out yet, three years in, into the game. I tell her I have it all figured out, but clearly she doesn't believe me. But I have so much to learn, so much still to, to learn about her, to get to know her, to really know, truly know who she is. And I know this is probably making you really uncomfortable, but that's important to me. In our marriage, that's a commitment I've made to know her, to truly know her. And that's the same commitment that God wants. We must know him. So it isn't just a matter of we must say, yeah, God is good. God provides for us. Wonderful. I have good ministry because God is good. Do we truly know Him? Do you know the characteristics of God? Do you know who He truly is? Do you know what He's truly all about? Or do you know Him as an acquaintance? Do you know Him just as a good friend? This speaks of something much deeper than that, to truly know Him. Now, there's only one way to really get to truly know God, and that's the next one, is to pursue the knowledge of God. We're called to do that in these scriptures. We must pursue the knowledge of God. Now, I personally have this theory that if I sit down and I watch TV and I don't do anything with my life, God is just going to supernaturally impose this upon my brain. And I'm really hoping that that's going to work. It still hasn't worked. I'll let you know when it does. But I'm starting to learn that we might have to do something. That it might actually take our own personal engagement. That we might actually physically have to intend to spend time with God. Do you intend to spend time with God? Do you intend to spend time with God the same way you intend to spend time with your spouse or with your children? Do you intend to spend time with God the same way you intend to spend your days at the office or doing ministry? Do you know God? Do you seek the knowledge of Him? Personally, I have a background in business. I, I'm, I'm kind of a business buff. I'm an administrator. I'm most comfortable when I'm working with spreadsheets and dealing with numbers. And uh, I, Tim and I work great together because Tim hates all of those things with a passion. And so I get the numbers, and he gets all of the fame and the glory and the, the figurehead and all of that wonder stuff that I'm happy to let him have. We have a purpose in life. We have put ourselves to that purpose. I have put myself to the purpose of being good at what I do. 
Do I have that same sort of motivation when I'm trying to get to know God? We must truly know God and we must seek the knowledge of God. We must pursue the knowledge. Now, if we do those things, if we seek Him, if we know Him, if we pursue the knowledge of Him, then He gives us promises. We've heard these promises all the way through the Old and the New Testament. This is absolutely nothing new. The first one that's given to us in this scripture, it says, Come, let us return to the... He he will now heal us at the end of verse 1 in chapter 6. He will heal our injuries. He will take all those pains away. How many of you have been damaged in life? Had a difficult relationship? Difficult co-worker? I read this book once um, called Working with Difficult People. Okay? Does anybody need to read that book? (laughs) I did. Of course, before I came here. I mean, let's not get any ideas. Don't tell Tim. Um, He will heal us. We, take, we have the tendency to take and, and, and drag these things along with us, our baggage. And we think it's okay to drag this baggage along. It's, if it, any, any counselor that has a biblical perspective on counseling will tell you that it's not your life's chore to drag around your baggage. It's to deal with it. It's to get rid of it. It's to be healed of it. That's the purpose. Now, when, once again, using my relationship with my wife, because I just love her so much, as an example, when we first got married, I had a ton of baggage to bring into the relationship, a ton of baggage to bring into it. And I remember um, our marriage counselor, Roger Boyd, um, wonderful, wonderful guy, used to come to church here, and he told us, he told me very, very directly, Nate, you have the power to either make or break this marriage, and it's going to depend on whether you decide to deal with your baggage or not. And that was made pretty clear to me. Now, did I do it? No. Well, because what do counselors know? But after the fact, I realized that he really knew what he was talking about, and I decided that maybe I should probably listen to him. Turns out he's a pretty smart guy. Are you dealing with your baggage? Are you letting God heal you? He has promised healing. He has promised you that he will heal you. This isn't just a one-off promise. This isn't just something that he just kind of scribbled down on a napkin one day and thought, hey, this is probably a pretty good idea. No, he wrote this in Scripture to be studied for thousands of years as a promise to his believers that you can and will be healed if you seek him. That's a pretty heavy promise. He will restore us to glory. So once we've been healed... We still have that. We still have that stuff, that that junk that follows it. Okay, that that uh, those relationships that maybe weren't quite so great. And you've dealt with your baggage, and you've received forgiveness for that, and you've dealt with it. You've been restored from that, but then you still have your reputation. It says here that we will be restored to glory. Now, does that mean that we will be dis- restore our reputation? Will be restored to social good again? No. It means that we will be restored to the glory of God. What better reputation to that than that? I know most of us run from people with baggage, kicking and screaming. Ah, don't touch me. Stay away. Okay, you got baggage. Those people have the potential for an amazing testimony that if God can get in a hold of their lives, those people will have a ministry that those of us with good, clean testimonies could never imagine. God has a purpose for people with baggage. I don't have a good, clean testimony, just so you know. I have lots of baggage. 
God will restore us. He will heal us. He will restore us to His glory. That's the standard, okay? Men's glory, God's glory, much higher. If we allow Him to do that, He is going to restore us. It says also that He is going to respond to us. So not only is He going to heal us and restore us to His glory, He is going to respond to our pleas. In Matthew chapter 7, Seek and you will find... Sorry, ask and you will get. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's another promise. He will absolutely fulfill that promise. So we're not just being put to the glory of God so that we can sit on our hands and twiddle our thumbs. No, we are being brought up to the glory of God because He has purpose for us. Because He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His will in life. He wants to demonstrate that will in life. As surely as the arrival of dawn or the coming rains. I love this scripture, this passage. It's, it's very controversial, actually, because um, people are asking the question. So is that as surely as in it will happen, or is it more about the importance of the coming rains and the dawn? Is it, is it a matter of quality, or is it a matter of, of promise that it will happen? And the people that get paid to argue over this stuff can keep arguing over it. I've come up with my own personal, probably somewhat unprofessional opinion. Um, I believe that it means it's a combination I believe that it absolutely means that as surely as the dawn or the coming of the rains in the spring, God will heal us. As surely as we know that tomorrow morning that sun is going to rise, God will heal us. In Thailand, as surely as we know it will probably rain in the next 24 hours, God will heal us. He is going to do this. This is a promise. The other piece of this word picture that I think that, that we can't leave out is the whole idea of the coming of the dawn, the rain in the spring. What a time of joy. It's hard for us to appreciate this now in a, in a, in a really non-agricultural type society. Our, in a lot of ways, our culture has kind of grown beyond that. And so we don't understand what it's like to wake up to rain when it's supposed to be there so that our livelihood can continue. Before my family moved to Colorado, I grew up in, in western South Dakota, out in the absolute middle of nowhere in the northern United States. And uh, we lived probably a good hour to hour and 20 minutes from the closest Walmart in a town of 150 people called Misland. Okay, tiny little town. And it was a town of nothing but farmers and agricultural workers. I think we had a bar and the Misland Mall which was a grocery store that sometimes had, uh, well, it wasn't even a it was a gas station that sometimes had groceries. We'll, we'll, we'll say that. <laughs> tiny, tiny little town. But I'll tell you what, there was something that I learned from that town that I have not really truly experienced in life in the other places I've, I've lived. And that's the absolute necessity to be dependent on God for His provision. They were all farmers. They all absolutely depended on him sending the rain. I remember in uh, July 5th of 2005, this day will always, always be in my memory. Um, we've had, we have lots of tornadoes in South Dakota. It's very, very common. Most people don't realize that because they don't realize South Dakota actually exists and is really a state that's not North Dakota. But really, we, we, we're right there in that, uh, that tornado alley and we get a ton of tornadoes. And on July 5th, 1995, 
uh, I remember we had this huge storm came in, and my my mom um, is has a history with the weather service, and she was one of those weather what do you call them? They, they're the crazy people that go out in the storm during the storm to call the weather service and tell them what's happening. Okay, crazy people. So she's telling us all to go into the basement, and she's running up to the to the porch, our, our second story porch, so she can stand on the porch in a raincoat and take pictures and see this huge storm coming in, this tornado coming in, huge bit of destruction. And she's on the phone with the the weather, and say, oh, it's coming in, and it's about this big, and you know, oh no, it's raining, oh no, now it's sleeting, oh no, now it's hailing, oh now it's softball sized hail, oh I'm going inside. And so she gets to that point in time, she runs inside, she comes downstairs, and she just tells us that we need to start praying. Because what us kids didn't realize that she was understanding was that it wasn't just the safety of people that we were worried about. Because most of the people, in fact, I don't think anybody actually died during this tornado. It came through, wiped a big, huge section of the land, but it brought this massive hail. And if you know anything about farming in the United States, July 5th, is pretty much smack dab in the middle of after we've planted, before we've harvested. And it devastated the entire community. Devastated. In the next two years, 50% of the farms auctioned off everything they owned and went out of business. It devastated their crop. I remember going into these fields and just seeing the, the corn just laying down on the ground. Unharvestable, nothing salvageable, wheat, barley, anything, soybeans, nothing was useful. That puts these farmers in a real position. This, this particular farm that I worked at had been in the same family for three generations. And uh, two years after this, they were some of the ones that ended up having to auction off everything they owned, and they gave this up. And uh, we had the chance to go visit them two years ago after we got married, this, this, this family that owned, owned this farm. And now she's working at the local newspaper, get this, the Newell Irrigator, okay? Yeah, that's right. Big town. So she's working at this newspaper, and he's working for another mission group. And I talked to him, and they said, you know what? It was a horrible thing. It was devastating. It, 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 it caused our family. Our family had to go find other jobs. Now they've got jobs all over the place. This was one of those farms where everybody, the whole family, lived on the same farm and worked the farm. Now they're all over the state doing different things. But she said, I had never realized how absolutely dependent we are on God. There was nothing that we could do to save that. Nothing. And she told me some of the words that will stick with me for the rest of my life that she said, that's what life is like. We think we got this under control. We think that we're in control of all these things. But we have no control. Anything could happen to take us out of this world today, tomorrow, tonight, now. Anything. We are not in control of those things. We are absolutely dependent on God's control. But I also remember those other joyful times growing up. Joyful. Well, it meant I had a lot of work to do, but I think it was somewhat joyful. So we'd wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go work, and we'd show up in the farm. We'd have our farmer's breakfast of like six eggs, 12 pieces of bacon, a glass of orange juice, a mug of coffee. And then we'd all hop on our four-wheelers and we'd go out into the field. And I just remember being out in the field and seeing the sunrise come up and the morning dew just kind of melting away off the plants. And it was one of the most beautiful things ever. Gorgeous. It's one of the only times South Dakota is actually pretty. But it's beautiful when that happens. 
And I think that that was intended in here. That this is not just a time of surety that it will happen, but this is a time of joy and thanksgiving that God is going to rescue us and take us out of this stuff. And He's going to do it because He has promised us that He will do it. And it's going to be a time of thanksgiving. It's going to be a time of happiness. And I think that Hosea was very, very intentional about using those words because he wanted that included. We must return to God, know God, pursue the knowledge of God so that it can heal us, restore us, respond to us as surely and as beautifully as the dawn and the rain so that we may live in His presence the purpose of restoration. Now, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like the, the church has gotten this backwards. And that we feel like that if we pursue God, then we can earn restoration. And I think that it's the exact opposite. And this is the wonderful div- divinity of God. Is that our restoration is not because of anything we've done. In fact, our pursuing God is because He has already restored us. He has already paid that price. He has already done that. There is nothing that we can do to take that back. God has done that by sending His Son to die on the cross. Now when He did that, He put us in a position where we then can know Him. We could never truly know God until He made that promise and that sacrifice of His Son. When he did that, we learned character of God that we could not have learned otherwise. It was necessary. The reason we can pursue God, the reason we can know God, the reason that he can restore us is because he has already paid that price. He's already done it. Now, I don't know about you, but this should be humbling. It is humbling for me. It should make you feel incredibly vulnerable, that you have no control that you cannot do anything to save yourself. It should make you feel very vulnerable. I think God is okay with this vulnerability because He's intended to fill it. That's what He's here for. He's intended to fill that vulnerability. Hosea knows this. Hosea trashed what could have been a very comfortable life because God told him to. He took a huge social risk. And in that, I think Hosea, in fact, it shows later on in the Scriptures that Hosea is a very joyful, happy man. But he did it because he did what he was commanded to do, because he understood that God had already restored him, and he had everything to owe God, and nothing that God owed him. Could you imagine that? For those of you who are single, God comes into your life and says, hey, go marry somebody that you know is going to cheat on you. Go marry somebody that you know is going to give you kids that are somebody else's? Can you imagine saying yes to that? But knowing that that is the will of God gave Hosea enough confidence that he was happy to go do it. Hosea was, just not, was not just preaching restoration. He was a demonstration of the restoration God had done in his life. His life demonstrated being restored. My challenge for you here is are you willing to let your life be a demonstration of God restoring you? Because the more and more I'm here, the more and more I work with Christians, the more and more we do ministry, the more and more I realize that's what separates the men from the boys. Okay? 
the women from the girls. Put it however you want it. That's what separates them. Those that say and those that do. Those that say, God is good. I'm going to go do what I need to do. I'm going to make this huge sacrifice and go to Thailand and you know live in a really, really nice house that I couldn't afford in the States and have a Maybon and all this good food and foreign food that I can get here. Making a huge sacrifice because I can go home whenever I want because I can just go home during the summertime so it's really not a big deal. Huge sacrifice. And preach that. Or are you truly going to let your life be a demonstration of the restoring that God has done in you? Do you view that as sacrifice? Or do you view that as paying a debt that you owe in a huge, huge way? Do you view doing God's will as a sacrifice? Or do you, do you view doing God's will as something that you should do because it's God's will and He's commanded it and you owe Him? He's done things for you that you can't possibly imagine. Hosea understood this and he was happy to do it because he knew that God did not owe him anything. But if anything, we are to give our lives to God. Now, who does this include? In Matthew, he goes back to the Old Testament and grabs the Scripture and brings it back into New Testament context. So this is how we can be sure that the, the context is relevant. Okay, because we can use it in modern day New Testament. So everybody can be sure that this is okay. Actually, I don't, I don't actually think that's true. But it is good scripture used in the New Testament, which confirms that it's applicable in a more modern time. It proves that it was relevant. And it proves that Jesus found it very, very fit to use it to um, reiterate the restoration that he has called us to. And in Matthew chapter 9... Verses 12 to 13, it says, Then Jesus heard this. He said, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, No, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So, for all of you that want to fit into the those that know that are righteous category, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, those that know they are sinners. Okay, you're all included. Okay, this is something that God has deemed necessary for every person in this room. Do you think you're righteous? Do you think that you can do what only God can do? Do you think that you can do the ministry that God has put on your hearts all by yourself? Or are you convinced that you're a sinner and you're broken and you need God's help? If you fit into that category, this applies to you. Now moving on in Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, O Israel and Judah, what should I do with you, asks the Lord, for your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. First point. When I read this, I get the real impression that God is frustrated. <laughs> He's just frustrated. We, we, we've seen this other places in Scripture. Um, this, is, this is not uncommon, and I don't believe by any means that this is a sinful emotion. It's not sinful to be frustrated. You're more than welcome to be frustrated. In fact, you should be frustrated. You should be frustrated at the way the world currently is. You should be. If you're not, then you haven't evaluated it from the proper perspective. You should be frustrated. 
God here is demonstrating his frustration. What should I do with you? How many of you have said that to your kids? What do I do with you? Frustration. For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into the second, the second half of that in verse 5 a little bit. Because I think, once again, my unprofessional opinion, but a lot of other professionals agree with me in this, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. I think that verse 5 has been misinterpreted. I think that, and a lot of scholars agree with this in, in uh, the different things that I studied at least, and you know, Wikipedia, they, they got it right. Um, not kidding, I, I didn't actually use Wikipedia, you can rest assured. But I think, I think verse 5 was misinterpreted. Right now it says, I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces to slaughter you with my words, that second part, with judgments as inescapable as light. The meaning of that, um, the idea you get that, that you can't escape his judgment. That like light in the darkness, you cannot escape it. It's there. Which is not necessarily bad theologically, but it doesn't match. It doesn't match the restorative idea of the scripture. The, the passage that we're reading, it doesn't match this idea that there's sin and then there's restoration. This just says there's sin and I'm going to punish you for it. There's a very, very different thing. And that's really important when you're looking into the scriptures to see these inconsistencies. So I went in and I did some research and I found other people that could read Greek and I had them read it for me. And uh, I read a Greek literal translation and I opened up a bunch of commentaries. And this was, I probably spent 90% of this sermon right here because this, it just didn't settle with me. It just did not settle. It didn't fit. So I went into that, and I realized that most of these people agree with me that that second part just doesn't fit. And really, the way it should be translated, the literal Greek translation, is my judgment shall go forth as light. Which is different. This means you cannot escape it. This means that it is something that is going to get you. My judgment will go forth as light has this idea that there's light in the darkness, that there's salvation. Some translations uh, actually try and, and translate this as with judgments as inescapable as lightning or as deadly as lightning, which is a totally different translation altogether, which really demonstrates the, um, the wrath of God, his desire to electrocute you with lightning because you've done bad things. Which I think there is judgment in God. I think that He is wrathful. I think He has the right to be wrathful. But once again, it doesn't fit. And so I prefer to take the, the Greek literal translation, which is, My judgment shall f go forth as light. Light in the midst of sin. That there's all of this horrible stuff happening, and in the common cycle of Hosea, there's all this horrible stuff happening, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to send my judgment as a light into the darkness. And I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you out of that. And I'm going to be a judging God that makes sure that there is justice in the world. But at the same time, I'm going to do it in the most loving, gracious way possible. Because that's who I am as God. That fits the character of God. Find me an Old Testament scripture that is nothing but judgment and no grace or no mercy. It doesn't exist. Old Testament scriptures don't follow that pattern. There's always mercy. Somewhere, there's always mercy. And I think that's what this was intended to be. The yes, it is inescapable. 
Because it is light in the darkness. But I think the point being that it's light in the darkness. And it will go forth as light in the darkness. Verse 6. Probably one of the more famous verses of the Old Testament. Um, widely quoted. Very, very common. So that... Um, verse 6. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Love, that word there, a lot of times, and there's, there's a lot of conflict on this, can be translated also as mercy. I want you to show mercy. I want you to know me. I don't want your burnt sacrifices. The use of this in Matthew, both chapters 9 and 12, was used to judge those of hypocrisy. That was its application there. Used to judge those that that preached a good game but really had no walk, really. They got the talk but not the walk, that whole thing. In Hosea, his two great loves, his two great um, focuses is love and the knowledge of God, that those go hand in hand. Those things are important. Now, the, the reason that these, uh, this, this context was used in Matthew is because uh, Jesus was convicting those religious people of the day of their rituals, of their, their um, liturgical ideas that were apart from the grace and mercy and the love of God. It was all about doing the act. It was all about fulfilling the message uh, or fulfilling the, the activity of the worship service rather than actually worshiping. And that's what Jesus was getting involved in there and saying, Look! I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want your burnt offerings. Now, Hosea isn't using the scripture because he wants the pendulum to swing from burnt offerings to nothing but love. But he wants a balance. There's a balance in that. There's a balance. And we should ultimately um, love people no matter what. But done in balance, that includes the whole spectrum. That includes the liturgical ideas. That includes the actions. That includes the, the, the personal ministry. But it's done out of love. It's done out of what Christ has done in your heart. I love this, uh, this word picture here that he doesn't want your, your burnt offerings. Um, I, I think that he really intentionally used that word burnt. <laughs> It doesn't just say, I want your offerings, or I don't want your offerings, or I don't want your actions. He used this, this, this wording here that kind of really alludes to this idea of, like, it's burnt, okay? I don't want that steak. It's burnt, okay? Steak is good. Burnt steak is bad, okay? Anything can be potentially good until it's burnt, and it's not so good. I think burnt was really important there. And so I want to challenge you to look at that and say, why would he use that scripture? Why would he use that terminology? What does burnt have anything to do with it? I think that God is, is, is trying to make a point here of kind of what he detests. That I want your sacrifices, but I don't want your burnt sacrifices. I don't care if they're burnt. I want them to come out of love. I want them to come out of devotion. I want you to know me. I want you to seek out the knowledge of God. That's what I want. I don't want your burnt sacrifices. That's the impression that I get from the scripture. Now this is, this is important to the people of that day because a huge portion of their worship took place around burnt sacrifices. 
And Hosea is making this point to them saying, God doesn't want your burnt sacrifices. He doesn't care about them. They are simply a tool to bring you closer to the knowledge of God. That's all they are. That's it. Your activities in life, the way you live your life, the ministry you do in life, your family, your relationships, your friendships, the family dog, nothing but items or tools that bring you closer to the knowledge and the character of God. That's all they are. That's it. If you take out that desire to know God, you might as well throw the rest of it away because it's useless. It's worldly. I know a lot of very, 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 very wealthy people and I read about a lot of very wealthy people that are extremely unhappy because they have everything and yet the one thing that they desire deep down in their soul, they don't have. And that's enough to make it all useless, all worthless. God doesn't want you to burn sacrifices. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to show mercy. He wants you to show love. That's our calling. Now, I have a question for you, but I hope they'll bring this to light a little bit. If you had the opportunity, the choice, to replace the love of your child with something, is there anything that you would replace it with? Would you replace the love of your child with a nice car? With a house? Good job? An extremely successful ministry? Would you replace the love of your child with anything? Then why do we expect God to? Why do we expect God to be happy with our stuff? I know that if Aiden grows up, my little two-year-old grows up, and he's an incredibly successful millionaire that has saved the lives of millions of orphans and yet has no relationship with me, that's just going to kill me. That's how God feels. The purpose of everything you do in life is to get to know God, to learn about His character, to learn who He is. That's the purpose. God doesn't want your burnt sacrifices. He doesn't want any of your stuff, your burnt stuff, if I can make it sound any worse. He doesn't want it. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. That's His purpose. If you wouldn't make that trade with your child, why would you expect Him to? And I'll tell you why. It's because we don't really believe. So we don't really truly believe. We're all guilty of that sin of unbelief. We're all guilty of that sin. That's why we're willing to make that sacrifice is because we don't really deep down in our hearts believe that God wants to be that intimate with us. We know it. We hear it. We hear it from Scripture. We've had experiences to demonstrate it in our lives. But if we truly knew it, wouldn't you drop everything, everything, to do nothing but get to know God. If you knew that the all-divine being of the world that created everything wanted nothing but a relationship with you, wouldn't you just drop everything and do it? But I know it's hard for me. I know I can't. I love to see things work. That's what I love to do. That's, that's really, if you could sum up my job, I love to see things work. I love to see ministries work. I love to see businesses work. I love to see mechanisms work. And I tell you what, sometimes I get a bit obsessive. Sometimes I get stuck in that. 
and I decide that the thing, the tool that I'm working with is more important than my relationship with God. This is brought really, really, really um, vividly to my memory in the recent past as I've been doing a lot of traveling for work. And uh, I'm realizing more and more how much I don't really like doing a lot of traveling. I always thought it would be kind of cool. You know, as a young business student, you're always thinking, you know, if I could just put on a suit and have a tie and get on a plane and ride a plane all the time and be, you know, um, useful enough to people to, to solve their problems that they would take me places. You know, isn't that the dream of us, to want to be useful, to want to be desired? And I soon realized that that just takes me away from my family and my friends and the things I love here. And, and uh, unfortunately, the thing down at the bottom of the list that generally gets given up is when I get home, I don't open my Bible and sit down and spend time with God. I want to spend time with my family. So God gets moved further and further and further down the list. We make great, great sacrifices of God, not to Him. We make Him the sacrifice. We move Him down to the bottom of the list because we don't truly believe. Can we ever truly believe until we finally get to heaven and we see it and we're there in front of Him and He's there and it's just this exciting moment? Are we really ever truly going to believe? I don't know if that's possible. I'm still pretty young. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of you older people can tell me that that, that that state can be reached. But I don't think it can. I don't think true belief is going to happen until it really happens. Until we're there. I have another question for you. If all things are secondary to God, if all things are to be secondary to Him and nothing but tools to get to know His character, why do we have this incredible problem in the missionary community of burning out? Why do we have it? I'm, I'm example number one. <laughs> I am absolutely not um, devoid of this particular thing. But why do we have burnout? Why do we get burnt out? If we are truly allowing God to fill us with what we need, and we are doing nothing but using the experiences He's given us on life to get to know Him better, to see His character more, why are we burning out? Why are we feeling more and more overworked and less and less loved by God? Why are we feeling that? I think this is a huge, huge danger in our community. I think this is something we really need to be worried about. I think this is something that you should be talking about with the people that you are in close relationship with. I think this is what you should be talking about with your spouses, with your close friends. If you're getting to that point where you are not feeling connected to God, where you don't feel purposeful in your ministry anymore, or you feel overwhelmed by your ministry, that's not God's fault. It's yours and you need to deal with it. I think this is something we need to be talking about amongst our community. Because if God is not filling our need, is it because He's not capable? Or is it because we don't really want it? I think we need to be talking about this. I want to challenge you this week to really evaluate that. That if life is just too much for you anymore, then it has taken priority to your relationship with God. Because if your relationship with God is the first and foremost thing in your life, God will, life will always be fulfilling. You will always feel full, joyful. And until we reach that point, we have work to do. I tell you what, I have a long ways to go on that. There is nothing that can replace 
your relationship with God? Nothing. Your ministry, as successful as it might be, not going to replace God. Not going to do it. In fact, if you try, it's just going to end up sending you home. We are here, just like people are elsewhere, for the purpose of doing God's will to learn about His character. And as soon as we stop learning about God's character, then we need to go find something else to do. Whether for you it's language, or just business, or finances, or your ministry um, is just not functioning, maybe you've got relationship issues, all these things that are coming down upon you, and and we are going to have those trials in life, and I think we need to deal with them head on, and I think it's important to know that there are going to be struggles, but they should not be enough to send us home. They should not be enough to take us away from our relationship with God. And if they are, we need to do some soul searching. Nothing can replace your relationship with God. Nothing. Your kids, your wife, your family, nothing. All those wonderful, ethical, good, moral, social things that we have in life that we think can fill that role, not possible. That's what sets us apart. That's what makes us as Christians different, is we have a different standard. Please keep in mind that the burnt offerings that you do, the offerings, we'll call them if they're good, they're offerings, if they're bad, they're burnt offerings, okay? Those are meant to be something that glorifies God. Absolutely. Not yourself. My traveling should not be something that glorifies me. In fact, I've quite learned my lesson that it's really not as great as it's chalked up to be. It's really not. When, uh, when, when we first came here and uh, I went to go work at the Family Connection Foundation, which is our foundation here as part of the church, that's my primary job, and uh, my job was to task out all these issues and fix things, and I was just having fun and blah, 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 and now the foundation is running pretty well and it's funded, and, all, and I still find myself going, well, but, well, now what? And the reason I brought you the scripture today is because this is something that's incredibly convicting to me right now. It's something that I need to be working with. I want to read you something from this book, um, Teach Me to Pray by Andrew Murray. Um, for those of you interested, my shameless plug, on, on Friday mornings at 9 o'clock a.m., several guys all meet together to read out of this book and pray and be very, very holy. So if you would like to join us, you may join us. An excerpt from this which I found extremely powerful to this, that describes the relationship we are to have with God. I want you to hear this. I'm going to read it nice and slow. I want you to absorb it. Close your eyes if you have to. I think this is really important. The union between the vine and the branch is a prayer union. The highest conformity to Christ, the most blessed participation in the glory of His heavenly life is that we take part in His work of intercession. In the experience of our union with Him, praying without ceasing becomes not only a possibility, but a reality. The holiest and most blessed part of a relationship with God. We make our abode within the veil in the presence of the Father. What the Father says, we do. What the Son says, the Father does. 
praying without ceasing is the earthly manifestation of heaven come down. The foretaste of the life where they do not rest day or night in the song of worship and adoration. Right there. If you want to know how you know God, what you do to continue to fulfill that relationship and let God just work in you, it's exactly that. Open yourself up and let God work in you. Put yourself in His Scripture. Put yourself in His Word. Put yourself in prayer. Find friends and family that will keep you accountable to that. In your families, and I am guilty of this, it's hard to remember, but in your families, please be prayer warriors in your families. That is how we know the character of God. It's by having an active relationship with Him. Don't let anything replace that. Anything. Hosea's life was a demonstration of sacrifice because God had done something amazing in his life and he didn't care what he had to do. He was going to do it because that's what God asked him. That's where his relationship was. And I think that is a really, really high standard to live up to. And I think that every person in here should be challenged to try. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that this scripture would just um, just go within our hearts, Lord, and fill every corner, Lord, that we would know, absolutely know, Lord, that you would cure us of the sin of unbelief, Lord, that we would know that these promises are true and they mean something and that we absolutely should evaluate our lives and decide whether or not you are truly first. And in the life of Hosea, you were first. And his actions glorified you because they were an outpouring of the relationship that he had with you. So Lord, I pray that that would be the same thing here. Lord, that we would go from this place motivated to do your will because of what you have done in us. Not so that we can win favor with you or not so that we can um, get to heaven, Lord, but because you have already done something in our lives. Lord, I pray um, that this weighs heavily on our hearts, Lord. And as we go um, home to our families and our friends today and uh, the ministries that, that we are working, Lord, I pray that you would make this um, relevant in our lives. Lord, you are gracious and good God. You're sovereign. You're all-knowing. Lord, you're omnipotent. And Lord, you can and will fulfill these promises. These are not just our humanly thoughts. They're true promises from the divine, perfect being of the universe. Promises that cannot and will not be broken. So I pray all of these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com. Dot O-R-G.